Part 1, Section 2 of The Freedom of the Will by Jonathan Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concerning the Determination of the Will By determining the will, if the phrase be used with any meaning, must be intended, causing that the act of the will or choice should be thus, and not otherwise, and the will is said to be determined when, in consequence of some action or influence, its choice is directed to and fixed upon a particular object. As when we speak of the determination of motion, we may mean causing the motion of the body to be such a way, or in such direction, rather than another. To talk of the determination of the will supposes an effect, which must have a cause. If the will be determined, there is a determiner. This must be supposed to be intended even by them that say the will determines itself. If it be so, the will is both determiner and determined. It is a cause that acts and produces effects upon itself and is the object of its own influence and action. With respect to that grand inquiry, what determines the will? It will be very tedious and unnecessary at present to enumerate and examine all the various opinions which have been advanced concerning this matter. Nor is it needful that I should enter into a particular disquisition of all points debated in disputes of that question, whether the will always follows the last dictate of the understanding. It is sufficient to my present purpose to say it is that motive which, as it stands in the view of the mind, is the strongest that determines the will. But it may be necessary that I should a little explain my meaning in this. By motive, I mean the whole of that which moves, excites, or invites the mind to volition, whether that be one thing singly or many things conjunctly. Many particular things may concur and unite their strength to induce the mind, and when it is so, all together are, as it were, one complex motive. And when I speak of the strongest motive, I have respect to the strength of the whole that operates to induce to a particular act of volition, whether that be the strength of one thing alone, or of many together. Whatever is a motive in this sense must be something that is extant in the views or apprehension of the understanding or perceiving faculty. Nothing can induce or invite the mind to will or act anything any further than it is perceived or is some way or other in the mind's view, or what is wholly unperceived and perfectly out of the mind's view cannot affect the mind at all. It is most evident that nothing is in the mind, or reaches it, or takes any hold of it, any otherwise than as it is perceived or thought of. And I think it must also be allowed by all, that everything that is properly called a motive, excitement, or inducement to a perceiving willing agent, has some sort and degree of tendency or advantage to move or excite the will previous to the effect or to the act of the will excited 
This previous tendency of the motive is what I call strength of the motive. That motive which has less degree of previous advantage or tendency to move the will, or that appears less inviting as it stands in the view of the mind, is what I call a weaker motive. On the contrary, that which appears most inviting and has by what appears concerning it to the understanding or apprehension the greatest degree of previous tendency to excite and induce the choice is what I call the strongest motive. And in this sense, I suppose the will is always determined by the strongest motive. Things that exist in the view of the mind have their strength, tendency, or advantage to move or excite its will from many things appertaining to the nature and circumstances of the thing viewed. The nature and circumstances of the mind that views and the degree and manner of its views, which it would perhaps be hard to make a perfect enumeration of, but so much I think may be determined in general, without room for controversy, that whatever is perceived or apprehended by an intelligent and voluntary agent, which has the nature and influence of a motive to volition or choice, is considered or viewed as good, nor has it any tendency to invite or engage the election of the soul in any further degree than it appears such. For to say otherwise would be to say that things that appear have a tendency by the appearance they make to engage the mind to elect them some other way than by their appearing eligible to it, which is absurd, and therefore it must be true in some sense that the will always is as the greatest apparent good is, but only for the right understanding of this two things must be well and distinctly observed. It must be observed in what sense I use the term good, namely, as good as the same import with agreeable. To appear good to the mind, as I use the phrase, is the same as to appear agreeable or seem pleasing to the mind. Certainly, Nothing appears inviting and eligible to the mind or tending to engage its inclination and choice, considered as evil or disagreeable, nor indeed as indifferent, and neither agreeable nor disagreeable. But if it tends to draw the inclination and move the will, it must be under the notion of that which suits the mind, and therefore that must have the greatest tendency to attract and engage it, which, as it stands in the mind's view, suits it best, and pleases it most, and in that sense the greatest apparent good, to say otherwise, is little, if anything, short of a direct and plain contradiction. The word good, in this sense, includes in its signification the removal or avoiding of evil, or of that which is disagreeable and uneasy. It is agreeable and pleasing to avoid what is disagreeable and displeasing, and to have uneasiness removed, so that here is inclined what Mr. Locke supposes determines the will. For when he speaks of an easiness as determining the will, he must understand as supposing that the end or aim which governs in the volition or act of preference is the avoiding or removal of that uneasiness. And that is the same thing as choosing and seeking, 
what is more easy and agreeable. When I say the will is as the greatest apparent good is, or, as I've explained it, that volition has always for its object the thing which appears most agreeable, it must be carefully observed to avoid confusion and needless objection that I speak of the direct and immediate object of the will of volition, and not some object that the act of will has not an immediate, but only an indirect and remote respect to. Many acts of volition have some remote relation to an object that is different from the thing most immediately willed and chosen. Thus, when a drunkard has his liquor before him and he has to choose whether to drink it or no, the proper and immediate objects about which his present volition is conversant and between which his choice now decides are his own acts in drinking the liquor or letting it alone. And this will certainly be done according to what, in the present view of his mind, taken in the whole of it, is most agreeable to them, if he chooses or wills to drink it, and not to let it alone, then this action, as it stands in the view of his mind, with all that belongs to its appearance there, is more agreeable and pleasing than letting it alone. But the objects to which this act of volition may relate more remotely, and between which his choice may determine more indirectly, are the pleasant pleasure the man expects by drinking, and the future misery which he judges will be the consequence of it. He may judge that this future misery, when it comes, will be more disagreeable and unpleasant than refraining from drinking now would be. But these two things are not the proper objects that the act of volition spoken of is nextly conversant about. For the act of the will spoken of is concerning present drinking or forbearing to drink. If he wills to drink, then drinking is the proper object of the act of his will, and drinking on some account or other now appears most agreeable to him and suits him best. If he chooses to refrain, then refraining is the immediate object of his will, and is most pleasing to him. If in the choice he makes in the case, he prefers a present pleasure to a future advantage, which he judges will be greater when it comes, then a lesser present pleasure appears more agreeable to him than a greater advantage at a distance. If on the contrary future advantage is preferred, then that appears most agreeable, and suits him best. And so still, the present volition is as the greatest apparent good at present is. I have rather chosen to express myself thus, that the will always is as the greatest apparent good, or as what appears most agreeable, is then to say that the will is determined by the greatest apparent good, or by what seems most agreeable, because an appearing most agreeable or pleasing to the mind, the minds preferring and choosing seem hardly to be properly and perfectly distinct. If strict propriety of speech be insisted on, it may more properly be said that the voluntary action which is the immediate consequence and fruit of the mind's volition or choice is determined by that which appears most agreeable than the preference or choice itself, but that the act of volition itself is always determined by that 
in or about the mind's view of the object, which causes it to appear most agreeable. I say in or about the mind's view of the object, because what has influence to render an object in view agreeable is not only what appears in the object viewed, but also the manner of the view and the state and circumstances of the mind that views, particularly to enumerate all things pertaining to the mind's view of the objects of volition, which have influence in their appearing agreeable to the mind, would be a matter of no small difficulty, and might require a treatise by itself, and is not necessary to my present purpose. I shall therefore only mention some things in general. One thing that makes an object proposed to choice agreeable is the apparent nature and circumstances of the object. And there are various things of this sort that have a hand in rendering the object more or less agreeable as 1. That which appears in the object which renders it beautiful and pleasant or deformed and irksome to the mind, viewing it as in itself. 2. The apparent degree of pleasure or trouble attending to the object, or the consequence of it. Such concomitants and consequences being viewed as circumstances of objects are to be considered as belonging to it, and as it were parts of it, as it stands in the mind's view, as a proposed object of choice. 3. The apparent state of the pleasure or trouble that appears with respect to distance of time, being either nearer or farther off, it is a thing in itself agreeable to the mind to have pleasure speedily and disagreeable to have it delayed, so that if there be two equal degrees of pleasure set in the mind's view and all other things equal, but only one is beheld as near, and the other are far off. The near will appear most agreeable, and so will be chosen. Because though the agreeableness of the objects be exactly equal as viewed in themselves, yet not as viewed in their circumstances, one of them having the additional agreeableness of the circumstance of nearness. Another thing that contributes to the agreeableness of an object of choice as it stands in the mind's view is the manner of the view. If the object be something which appears connected with future pleasure, not only will the degree of apparent pleasure have influence, but also the manner of the view, especially in two respects. 1. With respect to the degree of judgment or firmness of assent, with which the mind judges the pleasure to be future, because it is more agreeable to have certain happiness than an uncertain one, and a pleasure viewed as more probable, all other things being equal, is more agreeable to the mind than that which is viewed as less probable. 2. With respect to the degree of the idea of the future pleasure, with regard to things which are the subject of our thoughts, either past, present, or future, we have much more of an idea or apprehension of some things than others. That is, our idea is much more clear, 
lively and strong. Thus, the ideas we have of sensible things by immediate sensation are usually much more lively than those we have by mere imagination or by contemplation of them when absent. My idea of the sun, when I look upon it, is more vivid than when I only think of it. Our idea of the sweet relish of a delicious fruit is usually stronger when we taste it than when we only imagine it. And sometimes the idea we have of things by contemplation are much stronger and clearer than at other times. Thus, a man at one time has a much stronger idea of the pleasure which is to be enjoyed in eating some sort of food that he loves than at another. Now the degree or strength of the idea or sense that men have of future good or evil is one thing that has great influence on their minds to excite choice or volition. When of two kinds of future pleasure, which the mind considers of, and are presented for choice, both are supposed exactly equal by the judgment, and both equally certain, and all other things are equal. But only one of them is what the mind has a far more lively sense of than of the other. This has the greatest advantage by far to affect and attract the mind, and move the will. It is now more agreeable to the mind to take the pleasure it has a strong and lively sense of than that which it has only a faint idea of. The view of the former is attended with the strongest appetite, and the greatest uneasiness attends the want of it. And it is agreeable to the mind to have uneasiness removed, and is appetite gratified. And if several future enjoyments are presented together as competitors for the choice of the mind, some of them judged to be greater, and others less, the mind also having a greater sense and more lively idea of the good of some of them, and of others a less. And some are viewed as of greater certainty or probability than others, and those enjoyments that appear most agreeable in some of these respects appear least so in others. In this case, all other things being equal, the agreeableness of a proposed object of choice will be in a degree some way compounded of the degree of good supposed by the judgment. The degree of apparent probability or certainty of that good and the degree of the view or sense or liveliness of the idea the mind has of the good, because all together concur to constitute the degree in which the object appears at present agreeable, and accordingly volition will be determined. I might further observe the state of the mind that views a proposed object of choice is another thing that contributes to the agreeableness or disagreeableness of that object. The particular temper which the mind has by nature, or that has been introduced and established by education, example, 
custom or some other means or the frame or state that the mind is in on a particular occasion. That object which appears agreeable to one does not so to another. And the same object does not appear alike agreeable to the same person at different times. It is most agreeable to some men to follow their reason and to others to follow their appetites. To some men, it is more agreeable to deny a vicious inclination than to gratify it. Others, it suits best to gratify the vilest appetites. It is more disagreeable to some men than others to counteract a former resolution. In these respects, and many others which might be mentioned, different things will be most agreeable to different persons. And not only so, but to the same persons at different times. But possibly it is needless and improper to mention the frame and state of the mind as a distinct ground of the agreeableness of objects from the other two mentioned before. The apparent nature and circumstances of the objects viewed and the manner of the view, perhaps if we strictly consider the matter, the different temper and state the mind makes no alteration as to the agreeableness of objects any other way than as it makes the objects themselves appear differently beautiful or deformed, having apparent pleasure or pain attending them, and as it occasions the manner of the view to be different, causes the idea of beauty or deformity, pleasure or uneasiness to be more or less lively. However, I think so much is certain that volition in no one instance that can be mentioned is otherwise than the greatest apparent goodness in the manner which has been explained. The choice of the mind never departs from that which at that time and with respect to the direct and immediate objects of that decision of the mind appears most agreeable and pleasing, all things considered. If the immediate objects of the will are a man's own actions, then those actions which appear most agreeable to him he wills. If it be now most agreeable to him, all things considered, to walk, then he now wills to walk. If it be now upon the whole of what at present appears to him most agreeable to speak, then he chooses to speak. If it suits him best to keep silence, then he chooses to keep silence. There is scarcely a plainer and more universal dictate of the sense and experience of mankind than that when men act voluntarily and do what they please, then they do what suits them best, or what is most agreeable to them. To say that they do what they please, or what pleases them, but yet do not do what is agreeable to them is the same thing as to say, they do what they please, but do not act their pleasure. And that is to say, that they do what they please, and yet do not do what they please. It appears from these things that in some sense, the will always follows the last dictate of the understanding. But then the understanding must be taken in a large sense, as including the whole faculty of perception or apprehension, 
and not merely what is called reason or judgment. If by the dictate of understanding is meant what reason declares to be best or most for the person's happiness, taking in the whole of his duration, it is not true that the will always follows the last dictate of the understanding. Such a dictate of reason is quite a different matter from things appearing now most agreeable, all things being put together which pertain to the mind's present perceptions, apprehensions, or ideas in any respect. Although that dictate of reason, when it takes place, is one thing that is put into the scales and is to be considered as a thing that has concern in the compound influence which moves and induces the will, and is one thing that is to be considered in estimating the degree of that appearance of good which the will always follows, either as having its influence added to other things, or subducted from them. When it concurs with other things, then its weight is added to them, as put into the same scale. But when it is against them, it is as a weight in the opposite scale, where it resists the influence of other things. Yet its resistance is often overcome by their greater weight, and so the act of the will is determined in opposition to it. The things which I have said may, I hope, serve in some measure to illustrate and confirm the position I laid down in the beginning of this section. That is, the will is always determined by the strongest motive, or by that view of the mind which has the greatest degree of previous tendency to excite volition. But whether I have been so happy as rightly to explain the things wherein conflicts of the strength of motives or not, yet my failing in this will not overthrow the position itself, which carries much of its own evidence with it, and is the thing of chief importance to the purpose of the ensuing discourse, and the truth of it, I hope, will appear with great clearness before I have finished what I have to say on the subject of human liberty. End of part one, section two.